diving. There were fishermen's tales stretching back ages concerning sharks in the lake, stealing their catches nearly 50 miles inland, and even after they paved a golf course around it, the occasional old man would amble into the clubhouse, jabbering about seeing a fin in the water on 17. Then, last summer, the river overflowed and the coast flooded, and in dire September, when things dried up, a boy on his way to school found a bull shark, racked and rigid right there on the puddle clay road, stranded shriveling and fly-speckled in the apricot dawn. Hal Lipton had been in the desert for six months shooting a picture, and at the end of the six months, he told the studio to expect it to take six more. He'd rented a glass house for himself a few miles from set, where he and Elaine Bisquit, former Vegas nightclub singer and, in her presumed breakout role, star of Hal's film, would frequently disappear to on weekends or during lunch. The 4th of July fell on a Monday that summer, so the production took a three-day weekend. Early Saturday morning, as the first light was just beginning to edge out the stars over the mountains to the east, Hal and Elaine threw their bags and tents into the back of the open-top Land Rover that sat idling in their driveway. The driver stepped out to help Elaine with her luggage, an exceptionally tall and narrow fellow named Johan, the scuba instructor they'd hired for the weekend. When the sun came up, they were jostling down a washed-out dirt road through the red rock of Diablo Canyon. After a particularly nasty bump, Elaine said, Christ, you're going to kill us before we even get there. Johan laughed and eyed her in the rearview mirror. I was in the Peace Corps. For two years I lived in the Cambodian bush. Anytime I would leave to go to town, I'd have to take a cab back, and the road from the village to my hut was ten times worse than this. Those cabbies would take their 25-year-old Toyota Corollas down those things without blinking. There has to be some better way, she said. There isn't, said Hal, his head cocked sideways and hair spread flat against the window glass, watching the top of the canyon bounce by. We're going to get stuck out here, and the both of you will be picking my bones clean after two missed meals. You'll be half drunk and in the water before lunch, said Hal. The road flattened out after the canyon, and Elaine's temper mellowed. It was a still morning. The wind from the car shivered the palm tree fronds. The rock itself appeared, first as a mirage shimmering on the horizon. It's really a special place, said Johan. He parked in its shadow and cut the engine. The doors slammed in the silence. They hiked to the top of the rock and stopped for lunch. Johan was hauling the scuba gear in a large rucksack, and when he dropped them to rest, the oxygen tanks clanked together in protest. He insisted that the couple call him Yo. There is something about this place, said Elaine. Over her left shoulder, the pale desert ran flat all the way to the horizon. To her right, the trail swept down into the trees, toward the bowl at the center of the rock. It's fascinating, isn't it? She asked Hal. He shrugged in agreement, his mouth full of sandwich. She looked around him and fell backward onto the blanket. Her hair splayed behind her head like a crown, or the rays of a sun. The passing clouds reflected in her eyes, translucent as a dream. Being here feels like listening to that queer voice in your head that beckons you over to the edge of a cliff. Like looking over the edge and holding your breath and waiting to feel that hand on your back shoving you forward. It's so quiet, 
somehow. It's a special place, that's for sure. Johann smiled at both of them, and then looked past them into the hazy distance. About thirty miles to the east, just beyond those mountains, is something called the Delaware Basin. Back even before the time of the dinosaurs, a great inland sea covered the area. Now all that's left is a bed of salt three thousand feet deep. He lit a cigarette. My ancestors would roam freely across every inch of this land. The Swedes? asked Hal. My father is Swedish. My mother was a Navajo. He took a drag of the cigarette and stood up and walked to the edge of the rock to peer down. Somewhere in all that salt is something called the Waste Isolation Pilot Plant. It's not much to look at above ground, but deep beneath the surface are rooms the size of football fields, filled with waste from the testing and development of nuclear weapons. A warm wind blew across their faces, and Elaine felt, at this height, like a small leaf carried through the sky, lilting onward from gust to gust. There's a perimeter, twenty-five miles from the site, a square of columns, spaced, so that each is just visible on a clear day from its neighbors, rising solitary into the great open sky of the desert. There are hieroglyphs on the stone, attempts to warn future generations of the danger inside, grasping blindly ahead like ancient apes trying to project messages for us to understand, reaching back into the mists of history, plumbing for some base universal symbol to strike at men's brainstems across eons. Danger. Cursed. Bad land. Bad, bad, bad. The sun had reached its noon zenith and erased their shadows, washed out the burnt landscape in crisp shades of white. And farther on past the pillars, there's a wall of earth thirty feet high, and another row of warning columns after that. There's even, supposedly, a room at the center of it all, directly atop the waste, with no roof, open to the heavens like the tomb of a god. The air was humming with electricity as the party descended toward the bottom of the bowl, the trail choked with encroaching vegetation. It feels like the rock is digesting us, said Elaine. That's all death is, from a certain perspective, said Johann. You go into the earth, and it breaks you back down into the nutrients that it needs. I don't feel like I'm ever going to die, said Elaine. Not on a day like today. I don't suspect any of us will, said Hal. He paused to catch his breath then. Not really, anyhow. Johann smiled at them both. The pool at the center of the rock was a crystalline turquoise, startlingly clear, some fifty feet in diameter. There was no bottom in sight. Yo helped Elaine with her mask and oxygen tank while Hal dressed himself. The water was cold enough to clench his jaw. He could feel his skin tighten. Is it spring fed? asked Elaine. Nobody knows, said Johann. They suspect that they've only mapped perhaps ten percent of the cave system, and nobody has ever been to the bottom. Could go straight to the center of the earth for all we know. He smiled down at them, his finned feet dangling between the couple. I suspect an underground river. Maybe I will be the one to discover it some day. He slid off the rock and slipped into the water with a soft plunk. Hal swam around a bit, acclimating himself to the fins and the weight of the tank, while Yo held Elaine's hands, guiding her through the initial panic and helping her learn to breathe underwater. Once she had settled, at Yo's signal, the trio descended. They dove only a few feet deeper, and the desert sun began to fade into a gray twilight. 
the air bubbles rising around their masks, no longer shone with the sparkle of daylight. Hal looked between his feet at the rocky circle of shadows beneath him, concentrated around a point of perfect blackness at its center. He had not thought to ask Johan at the surface if anything lived here in this pit. His eyes began to make shapes in the darkness, and his heart ran faster. On land, he could normally distract himself from any number of invasive thoughts, even that most persistent and haunting fact that his heart had only a set number of beats within it, which he was spending all the time. A guaranteed but unknowable expiration date which he drew closer to with every passing moment, some fixed number in an account from which he was withdrawing always, even in sleep. Each beat simultaneously a reminder that he was alive and that someday he would not be. But down here, with nothing but the sound of each mechanical breath ringing between his ears, the fact that he was drawing from a finite number of breaths was much more immediate and impossible to suppress. The oxygen tank was something he could see, could wrap not only his mind but his hands around, could feel the weight of it on his back. That was all he had, and it terrified him, and caused him to spend those breaths much faster. Johan must have noticed this, and he swam over to Hal's side and placed a hand upon his shoulder. Hal pointed downward and placed a flat hand above his own head, like a fin. Johan tilted his head and then shrugged, his eyes hidden behind his opaque mask. Taking Hal by the wrist, he gently began pulling him down, deeper. Hal shook his head, resisted, began kicking, tore his arm from the guide's grasp. In the struggle, his regulator popped from between his lips and began to float out in front of his face, gradually rising towards the surface, spinning lazily on its tether. Panic. Hal drew a mouthful of water. Choking, chasing the regulator, he flailed towards the surface. His lungs began to burn. His head felt so light that it might follow the bubbles coming up from his errant mouthpiece and simply float away. Just as he began to think he was going to make it to fresh air, a pair of sturdy arms wrapped around his waist and halted his progress. It was Johan. He raised an index finger to his mouth. Hal thrashed wildly, no longer aiming for the surface or any definable goal, his limbs spasming in the death throes of an animal who knows only one thing, escape. But Johann's grip on his leg was firm. They rose gradually the rest of the way, intertwined until Hal's head broke the surface coughing, sucking desperately at the air between bouts of hacking. Yo's head emerged a moment later. He removed his regulator and pushed his mask up onto his forehead, blonde locks falling easily across the glassy surface. Yo patted Hal on the back and waited until he'd managed a few gasping breaths, let his heart rate begin to slow. You need to be careful. You're going to give yourself the bends. Hal nodded, wiped the water from his eyes with his thumb and forefinger, still breathing too fast to speak. Yo dragged him to the shore and up onto the beach. Elaine didn't come up and join them for another fifteen minutes. They all began to drink wine then, and one after the other passed out in the sand, the rock thrumming around them with primordial cicadal static. The sun was setting when they awoke and had their dinner. Johan started a fire with Elaine gathering sticks of various sizes in his direction. Hal slouched and waited. Can we see some of the caves tomorrow? he asked. I hear stories of rooms the size of concert halls. Johan, who had been proper enough all afternoon not to mention anything about the way he and Hal's dive had ended, now looked at his client with such raw incredulity that Hal recoiled, still laying on his elbow where he'd fallen asleep. You weren't even at 30 feet today, and you freaked out. You think anyone in their right mind would go into a cave with you? 
One wrong move and you'll kick up the silt and blind everyone. And then, even I am utterly fucked. You understand? I've dived this cave almost a hundred times, and even I can get lost down there. You think it was dark where you were? Wait till you get 50, 90, 120 feet down and make your first turn into a cave. You don't have any idea what dark is. Has anyone ever died down there? asked Elaine. The official count is nine, but it's almost certainly higher. Do they go down for the bodies? They do. Hal cleared his throat. Do they always get them? Johan shook his head. Not always. Hal and Elaine had only one tent and one king-size cot between them. They lay in the dark, listening to the crickets, neither looking at the other, but both fully aware that the other was awake. I'm sorry, E. I know you wanted to go into the caves. She did not respond for so long that Hal began to think maybe she was asleep after all. It's fine. You and I may just go by ourselves. The streak of moonlight through the tent flap fell across their feet, perched upright beneath the linen blanket that lay like a shroud over a pair of mummies. Would that be all right with you? Hal said nothing. In the darkness, he heard her shift onto her side. He did not feel her breath on his back, and when she spoke, he knew that she was turned away from him. Please don't deprive me of this, she whispered. Hal pretended to be asleep, and soon he was. Yo was waiting for them with cups of coffee when the couple emerged in the morning. I meant to ask you, Hal spoke between bites of bacon. Does anything live down there? The guide shrugged, his mouth full of pancake, swallowed. Who's to say? He flashed that smile of his at Hal. If I was a betting man, well... He stood up and took his client's syrup-smeared plates into a clattering stack of silverware and aluminum. Hal gestured at the sheath resting on the table. So why the big diving knife, then? I mean, if you've never actually seen anything. Johan picked it up, removed a few inches to examine. Seaweed, he grinned, and other entanglements. You say they've only mapped ten percent of it, said Elaine. If that, he leaned back in his chair. I should know. I'm responsible for probably three percent of it. Who knew? Our own personal Jacques Cousteau. Isn't that something, darling? Hal gave a nod. Sure is. That must be such a thrill, said Elaine. It is unlike anything else, said Yo. I've been places no man has ever been before. It's such a singular moment. I've never felt more completely... present. At one with the cosmos. It's humbling, but... At the same time, I feel almost like a god. It can be intoxicating. At the end of the day, though, you're just sort of staring at rocks, no? I mean, wet rocks, uh, maybe. Very cool rocks, even, but... Hal trailed off. Johan chuckled, mostly to himself. Hardly. I've seen new worlds. Incredible sights. Things you wouldn't believe cave formations the size of skyscrapers. It's like going for a spacewalk inside the Earth. Cave walls glowing with fungal formations more brilliant than the stars. Think about it. Just about every place on Earth above ground has been photographed by now. A hundred, a thousand times over. Hell, even most of the moon and Mars. Nobody has ever seen what I've seen. 
Maybe someday you'll have an underwater country named after you, said Elaine, grinning. Yo cave, said Hal, also grinning. Yo river, said Johan. He held Hal's gaze, then turned his eyes to Elaine. Elaine Mountain. She smiled and looked down at the table. There are pockets of air, too, if you know where to find them. A little black sand beach, even, just big enough for two. No room to stand, but a great place to sit for a picnic. He took the last piece of bacon from the pan in two fingers and took a bite before putting the pan on the stack to be washed. You have to be careful, though. He pointed at the pair with the half bacon. Some of those pockets aren't necessarily filled with oxygen. It might be full of, say, nitrogen. You never know it. Try taking a breath of that. Here he drew his index finger across his throat. Before you even know you're dying. They dove deeper that morning than they had on the previous afternoon, and without incident. When they bobbed to the surface, Yo clapped Hal on the back. Excellent work, my friend. One hundred percent improvement. For lunch, at the guide's suggestion, the trio took a picnic on a short hike to the north of the rock. I was imagining something a bit more... Rio Bravo, said Hal. They were staring up at where a concrete bunker was wedged into the shady side of a desert hill. It's certainly more 1950s than 1850s, said Johan. It's fascinating, said Elaine, already wandering toward the structure. She ran her hands along the crumbling concrete. The bottom of the iron door was wedged into the weedy earth, but she tugged it open just enough to slip inside. Johan and Hal split silently, exploring the various stairways and alcoves of the fort, crawling over it like ants. At several points, Hal called out for Elaine, at full volume, though never very urgently, and several times Elaine called out lazily for Hal. The guide periodically, when he remembered to, called for both of his clients, but none ever heard any of the others, despite often being only a few feet apart, only separated by an open doorway or bend in a wall as if the architecture of the place was swallowing their voices whole. The three eventually met back up and picnicked on the roof of the fort, atop the hill looking out over the desert to the north. They stumbled back wine-drunk to their camp and found some shade and fell asleep for the hottest hours of the day. Hal's head lay on his dusty pillow like a brick, and he dreamed of Johan and Elaine lying together on the black sand underground beach beneath an obsidian ceiling dotted with iridescent galaxies of lichen, while a corpse in an old copper dive helmet watched them from the far end of the cave. When he awoke, they were not around, and his mouth was dry. His head began to ring as he moved towards the beach, where he found the pair suiting up for another dive. The sun was trending towards the looming ridge of the rock, and the light between the tree leaves was turning pink. Going without me? We didn't want to wake you, dear. You look so peaceful. We won't be long. Just a quick sunset dive, said Johan. Back in time for dinner, said Elaine. Hal watched as they finished dressing and slipped into the water, ablaze with the last light of day. It may have been the gauze of sleep still in his eyes, or the way that the light danced off of the pool and across her skin. He could see the gentle rise of goosebumps over her legs, the backs of her arms, could feel them just beneath his fingertips, hovering close enough for an electron to leap from the ridge of his fingerprint. 
But in that moment, as the water took her, Hal could have been convinced that she was an angel. Two streams of bubbles assaulted the placid surface for a moment, faded in intensity, and then disappeared altogether. The shadows of the trees at the rim of the rock stretched over the water. Hal stood alone in the twilight, listened as the transition to night began around him. He saw his reflection in the water without detail, only a gray-blue ghost in the murk, the suggestion of a man. He began to dress himself for a dive. The water was even colder than he remembered, and he treaded at the surface for a few minutes, clenching every muscle to soreness, trying to will his heart to beat slower. He tried to remember what Johan had said, something about oxygen compressing at depth. An hour of air at 25 feet is 10 minutes at 100. Breathe slowly. Suck air in. Blow air out. Pause. Don't hold your breath. Too much carbon dioxide means passing out, or air expanding your lungs as you ascend until they're torn apart. Passing out means death. A shredded lung means death. Controlled breathing. Controlled. He descended. He turned on his light and found the line floating near the center of the pool. He followed it down into the dark. Breathing still occupied much of his focus. It was not automatic or passive. Each time he needed a breath, he had to suck it out of the regulator. He clamped it so tight between his teeth that his jaw ached. All he could hear was the sound of his own mechanical breathing, sickly, wheezing. He could barely see anything, only what little his light illuminated through the clouds of bubbles, and his mask was already fogged to near whiteout. He closed his eyes and wiped it on his shorts, steady, controlled breathing, surrounded by darkness. He could not tell if he was descending except to watch the pattern of the rope passing between his fingers. Then, beneath his feet, he caught sight of another light, maybe fifty feet down, only for a moment before it disappeared. He checked his watch, the red numbers glowing in the gloom. His depth was already at forty feet. He descended further. He paused. He'd been down for nearly two and a half minutes already, and he realized he could hear something other than his own breathing. He could not identify when the noise had started. It may have been getting louder, but he could not be sure. It was barely distinguishable from the din of the pool at the foundation of his hearing. The sound, almost, of wailing. A chorus, droning, whipped round in a gale, coming from somewhere farther down. A churning, industrial heartbeat somewhere beneath hearing. At least a thousand feet deep was all Johan had been able to say for sure. Hal aimed his light towards the depths and saw nothing until his beam landed on a second rope tied off to the main line about a yard beneath his feet. The second rope ran perpendicular straight for the wall of the cave. Hal followed it. His light found a sizable hole in the rock. He swam through. The hole led into a comfortably large room, but from there the line disappeared into a small gap, barely more than a crack in the surface of the rock. He checked his watch. Nearly six minutes passed, and he only had twenty minutes of air, as he figured it. That needed to include time for decompression stops on his way up. He had to be back out of the cave and descending the main line by ten minutes at the latest, and that didn't leave a second for error on his return trip. 
The sound had stopped if it had really been there in the first place. Hal could not have pinpointed when it stopped. He took off his air tank to carry it under his arm and wedged himself into the face of the rock. Once he was in, chin on his shoulder, he could no longer turn his head. He shuffled himself a few yards and then the rope led down, through a hole in the floor of the rock. He shimmied himself down toward the hole and managed, palms on the rock, forearms throbbing, to orient his body for the dive down. His shoulders squeezed through the hole, then his hips. Then he began to feel the pressure increase on either of his arms. He tried to free one hand over his head to pull himself forward, but it was no use. He was stuck. He attempted to back up. He could not. The motion for the task simply did not exist. He had no leverage or freedom of movement to extricate himself. He could feel his heart pumping faster, pressed to the rock, fighting for space with each frantic thrust against his chest. His mask was fogged and getting foggier, his breathing crazed and hollow, echoing endlessly around the rock. An acute, icy sensation in his fingers and toes, not entirely unpleasant. The inside of a cave grew darker. He thought that his flashlight battery must be dying. It grew darker still. A long, black eel with yellow eyes slithered out of a hole in the rock and began swimming toward Hal's mask. Hal wanted to panic, felt the urge, and then felt it pass. What would his efforts gain him? He had no hands. He could not move. And then the eel pressed forward into his mask, and the panic could no longer be suppressed. It soaked into every muscle fiber like lighter fluid into charcoal. He began to scream, his body spasming in the firm grip of the rock. The eel needed to get out, and there was only one way out. It was going to tear its way with those terrible teeth through Hal's mouth and out the back of his skull. Little chunks of flesh floating in pinkish clouds in front of his mask. His legs swung wildly back and forth, hinged at the knees like the chimes of an inverted grandfather clock, trying to make up for lost time. And then something stopped him. Something wrapped around his right ankle. Something strong. Soon he was moving. He no longer knew which way was up. If he was falling or flying. And then he blacked out. Halo of blonde burned into his retinas. Johan eventually managed to pull Hal's limp body free from the rock. He shook him awake and pressed his own regulator into Hal's mouth. Hal managed a few half-conscious breaths. Yo took the regulator back and got a breath for himself. He tucked Hal under his arm and began kicking for the surface, a mirage shimmering in purple at the edge of oblivion. The mute and dumb moon hung, watching in the sky when Hal awoke, the perfect circle of its face framed concentrically in the sharp silhouette of the rock and mirrored darkly in the heart of the pool. The water did not so much as waver. The reflection rendered every crater and scar in matching detail. He shifted on his back. The stony beach clattered dully beneath his writhing. Are you all right? Does anything hurt? We came up a little fast. No, I think I'm fine. He turned his head and winced. Except for a massive headache. Yo nodded, sat watching his client, forearms resting on his knees. You panicked. Used 15 minutes of oxygen in 30 seconds. Where's Elaine? The guide looked up at the trees. I don't know. Hal sat up. The ring of trees began to spin. The stars swung wildly as if he were in a cosmic washing machine. I thought you might know. 
The guide's eyes shone in the dark, their intensity implied the firm set of his jaw in the shadows. They did not leave Hal's face for a long time. Hal's eyes gazed back, heavy with pleading. His throat tightened. I suppose she is still down there, then, said Johan. He flicked a liar and lit a cigarette. The water did not make a sound. Johan let go a cloud of smoke and it lingered, pirouetting lazily toward the sky, the only thing moving for a mile in any direction. By the time it was gone, the trees had stopped their spinning, though Hal could not pinpoint when exactly it dissipated. The police and the media arrived at the rock just after sunrise. The first team of rescue divers went down a little before seven. Hal did not wear the foil rescue blanket he'd been given, just carried it half-bunched in his hand as he wandered dazedly around the pool, up and down the rock. A reporter asked the sheriff if he thought they'd be able to retrieve the girl's body if it had fallen to the bottom of the pool. If she's at the bottom of that pool, I don't believe God himself could reach her. Lunch came, catered by the trailers from set. Then they made the announcement. The film's production would be taking an indefinite hiatus. The police talked to Johan, notepads in hand, and then they came to talk to Hal. He sat down on a rock, his eyes wandering across the water, the rocky beach, the black polish of the police detective's shoes. People began to talk, as people will. He had, after all, already had one wife go missing, hadn't he? And then they did more than talk. Blind items, rumors printed. A week passed. Reporters and cameras on his doorstep, following his car. He called his lawyer, and his lawyer told him to expect that the next knock would be the police. Hey, you don't think I did it, do you? There was a long pause. Of course not. After he hung up with his lawyer, his phone rang, and it was the studio. He was being fired from the movie. He lay awake in bed all that night tracing the shadows on the ceiling, and slipped out before dawn, before the news vans were awake. It was still dark when he arrived at the trailhead. Mounting the overlook on the rim, the desert was all blue and shadow. The search and rescue operation, the media operation, all gone, save for their wrappers and empty water bottles. The rock stood towering, hulking, preening in the pre-dawn dark like a great cathedral. The stars and the planets moved about its form. A distinct unease trickled in coolly through Hal's neck and washed down his spine. He stood on the beach in the dark, feeling the sharp morning air in his nose, his chest rising and falling. And then, it was no longer fully night, though Hal could not have said when exactly the transition took place. His eyes adjusted, looking down the beach to his right. He saw, for the first time, Johan. He was standing no more than 20 feet away, silent. Hal shuddered. Are we going for a dive? Asked the Swede. He wore a navy turtleneck and stood facing the water with his hands in his pockets. The two undressed and gathered their gear in silence. Johan was ready first, and he waited for Hal, following him under. Their flashlights probed impotently into the black infinite. The divers found the main line and descended. Farther and farther they went. With his light turned away, Hal could not see his own hand an inch from his face. 
The cave wall could have been half a foot from his nose, or it could have been 30 miles. His mind merged with the void, the nothing, ran out high pressure to low, osmosis. He thought nothing. He was nothing, floating weightless out of time and space. He bumped into something, Johan. The Swede held up his notepad and shone his light. We are looking for a corpse. The two men stared at each other through opaque masks. Johan scribbled something else. Don't become one. They sank deeper and deeper, Hal's heart racing as he waited for Johan's frozen form to signal an end to their descent or to feel the cave floor beneath his fins, a floor which surely, surely, somehow they must have missed, must have passed by now. That they continued to go lower still made him sick somewhere deep in his stomach. He could feel the weight of the water on his shoulders, on his joints, pressing down on his vertebrae, squeezing his skull. His sinuses threatened to crack and crumble. Down and down, Hal strained to hear the noise he'd heard coming from the deep on his last dive, but as far as he could tell, it was not there. Johan directed him towards the cave. They entered. After a number of turns and trips down a long, winding hallway, the divers found themselves in a massive cavern with a ceiling as high as a gymnasium. They floated away from each other in their awe, away from the line. Hal soon realized the mistake and reached out for the rope. His hand found only water. Suddenly frantic, he reached out farther, grasping again and again, grabbing only water. He began to wave his arms around, stretch his toes, desperate to find anything. There was nothing, and he was breathing very heavily now. His light found only more blackness, and there was no sign of his partner's light. He kicked back in what he thought was the direction of the cavern entrance. It was the last move he'd make with even a degree of certainty as to his own orientation. Once he'd committed to a point of confidence, turned his body in that direction, anything else his inner ear may have been able to intuit as far as his own position within his environment went out the window if he was so much as a few degrees off. Up could be down, down, up. He eventually hit a wall and began crawling along it, back and forth, over and back, in search of the entrance, the line, anything. Easy breaths, easy breaths. He'd been under for 15 minutes, and he was almost 200 feet down. He had 15 minutes to find his way out of the cavern, by his own estimate. He followed the rock until he met an angle in the wall, and it became the ceiling, or the floor, or another wall. And he followed this new wall. 20 minutes under, he felt around for his dive notebook and pencil. What then, he thought. Of course I'm not giving up. Of course I'm going to find the exit. But what if I don't? What then? Should he write a note? To who? His son? Not likely. Proclaim his innocence? His love for Elaine? Should he try to cram all of his thoughts in, get them all out now? Or leave it pithy, memorable? He spun backwards a bit, too slow to notice. His head banged against a rock, startling him. In the commotion, his fang kicked something in the water filled with debris, dust, soil, blinding him. Calm down, he thought. Calm down. His heart beat faster. His breath came heavier. 
he grabbed the thumb hook to inflate his buoyancy device. If nothing else, he'd know which way was up, and was something to work from. With a great whining gasp, he was propelled through the water. His face met the ceiling a moment later. Hal heard a crack that underwater sounded almost like a squeak. He tried to breathe and got nothing. Ice-cold panic shot through him. His heart seized. His regulator was broken. Already his lungs began to burn. His head throbbed. His arms and legs were impossibly heavy. His muscles on fire. He swam. If he moved, he had a chance. His light caught an irregularity in the rock. A hole. A door, even. The cave was growing fuzzy. He could not tell if it was the same door they'd come in through. He moved furiously, defiantly. The pain in his head began to dissipate then, melted into something almost euphoric. A fine tingling, spreading over everything. The light found something else irregular, overhead. Splashing water, foam. There was a space of perhaps 18 inches between the top of the water and the bottom of the ceiling. He made for it, feeling as if he held only half command over any of his limbs, as if they were no longer under any obligation to respond to his signals. And then he had air. Gasping, desperate, wheezing, cheek pressed to the rock, mouth stretched in a malformed oval. His hands groped the ceiling for anything to hold on to. He breathed and breathed and breathed and watched the water drip from his hair into the black pool. He stayed there a long time, long after his breathing had calmed. He supposed he would have to move eventually. If he moved, he might find daylight. Surely the sun was up by now. He checked his watch. It was just past seven. He imagined what the campsite would look like at this moment, what the kitchen of his empty desert vacation house would look like. He clung to the air pocket minute after minute. He cursed it. If only he'd already drowned. The hard part had been over. He was right on the precipice. All that had been left was to step off. What was he going to lose anyways? And now he had to go through it all again. After sitting here, thinking about it, he had to choose to go back down. Choose when enough was enough. Choose when it would end. Was it like jumping into a cold pool, he wondered? Better to turn your brain off and jump? He heard something then, felt something brush his leg, then grab him. Johan surfaced in front of him, stared at him for a moment, and then removed his regulator and mask. My regulator is busted. Johan scooped it in his hand, examined it. It was. I do not have enough air for two, said the Swede. I see, said Hal. They floated in silence, neither meeting the other's eyes. Hal's light flickered a bit. Did you kill her? asked Yo. You lost her, said Hal. Funny how women just seem to disappear around you. It wasn't enough for you to have her, was it? To take her from me, to hold it over me. My friend, she was never yours. Hal eyed the other man's diving knife, strapped snugly to his thigh. Do you remember the way back? asked Johan. Hal looked up into Johan's eyes. Then his light burnt out, throwing a long, dreary shadow over the Swede's stony features. Narcosis is a funny thing. Did I ever tell you about it? Something about nitrogen at high pressure. 
it has a tendency to make the brain a bit loopy. You see what I'm saying? You can feel it, can't you? Of course, I'm sure you couldn't tell me how long you've been feeling quite like this. I'm sure it's how you ended up in that precarious position I found you in the other day. Anytime you go deep enough, you learn not to trust your decision-making, not to rely on your own brain. You act irrationally. It's like drinking half a dozen martinis on an empty stomach. You're shit-faced, my friend, and you don't even realize it. Hal looked into Yo's face, his eyes hiding nothing. Johan laughed and wiped water from his brow, then he turned off his own light. Hal listened a long time for him to leave and heard nothing. He imagined reaching out with his hands, feeling the other man's flesh still beside him in the dark. If his hands found him, Hal knew he would have to follow through. No hesitation. He would have to finish the job. Only enough air for one. The director hung suspended in the ether for a while longer, floating blind in the subterranean uterine darkness, his ears ringing madly for want of something to hear. There was nothing. Alive or dead, in that moment no man could have said. He waited for the ether to speak. <laughs>